Well, let me add my welcome. I'm glad you guys are here. I hope you had a good, restful, enjoyable, relaxing uh, Thanksgiving. Anyone? All right, to those of you who didn't say anything, I, I hope you celebrated Thanksgiving. Um, it was a good Thanksgiving for us. We usually have a pretty big crowd over, but I think I mentioned last Sunday my wife had surgery on Wednesday, which went very well. And since I am not a great cook, uh, DiGiorno's pizza was our Thanksgiving dinner, and it was, I have to say, pretty phenomenal. So maybe next year new traditions will get formed at the Davis House. Um, we have been in the midst of a great series uh, called Conversations, and as Zach has mentioned, uh, I feel like we've had some pretty hard, some pretty challenging uh, conversations, uh, difficult uh, in nature, talking about religion and science and politics. And uh, today's conversation, though, uh, is different. It's going to be challenging in its own respect, but what sets this conversation apart, we're talking about sexuality. Uh, what will set this conversation and make it even more challenging is, generally speaking, uh, sex and sexuality is a very private and it's a very personal thing, uh, meaning it's not something that you just go out and you just talk about, uh, which is odd to me because we live in a very, uh, very sexually saturated culture where it's just everywhere, it's in your face. Um, so my aim today is not to uh, be provocative in talking about this. My aim is not to shock anyone by talking about sex and sexuality. Uh, as Zach mentioned, Scripture talks a lot about it, and so we want to talk about what Scripture talks about. Uh, but my hope would be that uh, we would leave here and have a really good understanding of what God actually has to say about sex and sexuality, because I feel like uh, Christians uh, have to really wrestle with the question, is my understanding of sex and sexuality being driven by what culture has to say and think about sex and sexuality, or is my understanding what I believe about sex, sexuality, actually being driven by, hey, this is what God actually has to say about sex and sexuality. My hope would be for the latter. Unfortunately, what I see often is our attitudes, um, our behaviors, our actions towards sex and sexuality is more consistent with what's, what culture has to say, and hopefully today we'll be challenged with this is what God has to say. Um, I've done this before, but I don't know, honestly, if I'm ready to have this conversation. Um, I've been obviously studying and praying and, and planning this for months and months, uh, but this is one of those conversations that it's just a huge topic. Every co conversation we've had is a big topic. Books, uh, multiple of books have been written on each of these topics. But as it relates to sexuality... Are you ready to have this conversation? And I don't mean, are you ready to have this conversation with me? I mean, are you ready to have this conversation with people uh, that are around you? Are you ready to answer some of the questions that culture is, is asking uh, towards, towards you, towards Christians, towards the church? Questions like this. Why do you care who I'm having sex with? What is it to you if I'm having sex with a man, a woman, or both? Why is that any of your business? How would you respond to someone who, who says or, or asks you that question? How would you respond to someone who said, you know what, I was born gay, so if God made me like this, what's the problem? I can't do anything about it. I don't have a choice in the matter, so what is your issue with me being gay if your God made me like this? How would you respond to that? How about this question? Why can't I have sex with someone I love? 
It's a loving act between two consenting adults. Why do we have to be married to somehow make it more acceptable? We love each other. We care about each other. We're in a committed relationship with one another. That's just what loving people do. What is your problem with it? Or how about this? Christians are such prudes. Lighten up. What's the harm in just having a little fun? Because at the end of the day, that's all we're doing is just having a little fun. This is a snapshot of some of the questions or the statements from real people who struggle with the the issue, the topic, the conversation of sex and sexuality. And so my question for you is, are you ready to have this conversation? Are you ready to explain and say, well, this is how I understand sex and sexuality, not because I've seen some movies on it, but because I've wrestled with this issue. And I know what I believe and why I believe what I believe, uh, because this is as best as I understand what God has communicated to us about sex and sexuality. My uh, hope uh, is to, to answer two questions. Um, and obviously within each of these questions is going to be multiple questions. But the two big questions uh, is, number one is, this, what is sexual sin? Is there such a thing as sexual sin? If it is, what is sexual sin? Who deems what is sexual sin? And what should be my response uh, towards personal sexual sin, towards cultural uh, sexual sin? Uh, so that would be number one. And number two would be, how does one honor God? If you're a Christian, uh, meaning you're a follower of Jesus, how, does one, how do you, as a Christian, honor God with your sexuality? How do you think about sex uh, in a way that is actually honoring to God? Uh, so those are hopefully the two questions that we can uh, cover today. Uh, again, I've done this before, but I, I, it's helpful for me to start with some observations to, to put a frame, so to speak, around these questions or maybe even give it a foundation of how we're answering these questions. So I share with you very quickly four observations as it relates to sex and sexuality. Uh, this is, number one, is really more of a statement, but the statement would simply be this. I won't apologize for what God's word says about sexuality. I won't apologize for what God has to say about sexuality. As you're going to see, what God has to say, bless you, is very different than what culture has to say about sex and sexuality. And not only is it very different, what God's word actually has to say about sexuality uh, is very offensive to many, if not most, in our culture. And so I could have one of two approaches. I could say, you know what, I'm going to kind of twist this, I'm going to water it down, I'm going to manipulate this, uh, I'm going to make it just seem a little bit more palatable, uh, make it a little bit more pleasing uh, so people are not offended by sex and sexuality, specifically what God has to say. Well, that would be a bad approach, so that's not my approach. My approach is to say, this is what God's Word has to say. My job is not necessarily to defend Scripture, as it were, but it's to explain, hey, this is what Scripture says, and then to walk through how can you and I have our lives shaped by what God has revealed to us in Scripture. For example, in Romans chapter 1, it would be easy to cut these verses out and say, you know what, that made sense in Rome because Rome was a very gay Rome. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But it would make sense to keep it in the first century because in Roman culture, but in 21st century culture, like take this few verses out of scripture because it's going to offend people. It says this, they traded the truth about God for a lie. And Paul is talking about, he's explained who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how we can have a relationship with God through Christ. 
And he says people's response was they traded the truth about God for a lie. And so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Verse 26, that is why God abandoned them, meaning he literally gave them over uh, to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to having to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, they burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this, they suffered with themselves the penalty they deserved. That's a hard scripture. That's a really hard scripture, but my, I won't apologize that this is what God says. But what I think some of us might need to do is apologize for how we've communicated it. Meaning we don't have to take hard scriptures, which clearly this is a hard, challenging scripture. We don't have to be hard about it. Meaning we communicate scripture with great humility. With great humility of what God is revealing to us. Too many times I've seen other pastors, I've seen other Christians use scripture as a weapon to beat someone up with. And scripture is not a weapon to beat someone up with. So again, we're not apologizing for Scripture. We'll communicate what God says to us in Scripture, but let's do it in winsome ways. Let's do it in compassionate ways. Let's do it in encouraging ways. Let's do it not as people who have been hardened, but people who have been softened by God's Word, communicating God's Word. Number two, this would not go over well either in culture. Number two is your body is not your own, meaning you can't do whatever you want with your body. We live in a culture that says, hey, it's my body. I will do what my body, whatever I feel like doing with my body. I don't care what you say because it's not your body, it's my body. That might be, that's very prevalent in our culture. I think it's prevalent because our culture values things like uh, comfort and convenience. But just because our culture values that doesn't make it right. Your body does not belong to you. Your body belongs to God because God created you and God owns you. And I know that might sound weird to say it like that, but the attitude of I'll do what I want with my body, well, you're not the owner of your body, neither are you the creator of your body. God created you and God owns you as it were. So the question that we really need to be often asking ourselves is, hey, this is God's body. Is it okay for me to do this? Is it okay for me to engage in this? Is it okay for my eyes to see this? Is it okay for my mind to think? Because this is God's mind. This is God's heart. This is God's body. God, is it okay if I give myself over to whatever you might be giving yourself over to? Paul says it like this in Corinthians. uh, Run from sexual sin. Uh, No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Again, maybe not popular in culture, but the truth of the matter is my body was created by God and belongs to God And the challenge for me as a Christian man is, God, I want to honor you with my body. So is it okay for me to do this or to do that? Number three, 
Your identity is not derived from your sexuality. I'm sure you've heard people say, well, I'm gay. I am, I am uh, bisexual. I'm transgender. Or some people just say, hey, I'm straight. Well, all of those statements have something to do, obviously, with sexuality, but none of those statements define who you are. Those are statements that define what you do or how you operate, but those are not statements that speak to who you are as a man or who you are as a woman. I am not defined by being a heterosexual white male. That's not my identity. My identity, and we talked about this weeks ago when we looked at man, of what does it even mean to be human? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And the answer was simply, our identity flows from our image. So the question is not one of identity. The question is one of image. So our image flows from God created us not only to know him, but God created us in his image. So we bear the image of God on our lives. And because of Imago Dei, the image of God imprint on my life, my identity flows from an image bearer, not from my sexuality or my sexual preference, as it were. So number three, your identity is not derived from your sexuality. Uh, Number four, finish with this observation, is this. There is hope and healing for those who have been sexually abused or sexually assaulted. I am, uh, it's been really hard over years of pastoral ministry meeting with many women and many men who have been sexually abused or sexually assaulted. If the statistics are at all true, uh, women, one in four of you already have been abused or will be abused sexually or sexually assaulted at some point in your life. Men, If it has not already happened, one in six of you will be sexually abused or sexually assaulted if it hasn't already happened at some point in your life. Now, the tragedy of that statistic is I don't even think it's completely accurate because much of sexual abuse, um, uh, sexual violence committed goes unspoken, meaning people don't report the sexual crimes, the sexual abuses that have been committed against them for fear of just shame, uh, for fear of what they'll have to go through in coming out and saying, I was one who was sexually abused or sexually assaulted. Even sadder about this reality of those who have been abused or assaulted is 80% of those who have been abused or assaulted uh, have been abused or assaulted by someone that they know, someone that is in their circle of friends, as it were, whether it is a family, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, whether it is a teacher, a coach, a mentor, uh, they've been abused 80% of the time by someone who knows them. And because it is abused by someone that they know, it only causes further pain and hurt and only causes further confusion of, well, gosh, maybe there was just something I could have done to prevent this or stop this. And so they carry for years and years and years the baggage of something that was done to them And I wanted to share with you this morning, if that was you, if you're here this morning and just the mention of sex and sexuality and hearing the the word of abuse, if that is you, I want you to know there is just, there's hope. There's hope that there is healing. What someone took from you, what someone robbed you of, what someone used as a weapon uh, to literally hurt you, God can not only redeem that, but God can completely restore you. 
Not just part of you, not just some of you, but all of you. I've sat with countless numbers of people who have been abused, and they just are riddled with guilt and shame because of something someone did to you. But I say with absolute confidence that because of Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, there's freedom, there's hope, there's healing. No matter what has been done, no matter how horrific it has been, there is hope and there is healing. Clearly, many more observations could be made as it relates to sex and sexuality, but I share those four to kind of set the groundwork for how we'll answer these two questions. And the first question that we answer is this, what is sexual sin? Uh, And what shall our response be uh, to sexual sin? Now, I typically do this, but in order to answer this question, you got to start with another question. Uh, And that question would simply be, well, where where are you getting your standard from? Meaning, where does your standard of what is right, what is wrong, what is evil, what is morally wrong, morally acceptable, where is that standard actually coming from? You already have something within you that says, well, that's right and that's wrong. We live in a culture that says, well, I can only tell you what's right for me, but I'm not going to be the one and the authority that says this is right, wrong for you. Now, I challenge you I think week one with this is whatever belief you have, follow that belief to its logical conclusion, to its logical end. So if we decide that the moral standard should be left up to the individual, what's good for you is that's okay because you've declared it to be good for you. Or what's wrong for you, well, that might not be wrong for me. You've got to follow that belief system to its logical end. So its logical end would force you to answer a tough question like, Would it be okay for a grown man to have sex with a 12-year-old girl or boy? How do you answer that question? If the standard is, well, that might not be right for me, but I can't tell you what's right. If an older man says, well, that's right by me, I don't have a problem with that. What about would it be okay for a person, male or female, to have sex with an animal? Would it be okay for a brother to have sex with a sister or a brother to have sex with a mother, his mother? Would it be okay for a woman to have sex with another woman or a male to have sex with another male? Would it be okay for a person just to have sex with anyone that they feel like having sex with? These are all questions that, as I'm asking them, some of you are like, well, no, no, maybe, not sure, definitely no, and yes on that one. So where is your standard of how you're even answering yes and no? Where is it actually coming from or What are you basing your standard of this is appropriate or this is uh, inappropriate? Um, My point in giving these examples is simply to say this. We can't look to ourselves to define what is sexually uh, appropriate and what is sexually inappropriate. Because what is appropriate to me could be completely inappropriate to someone else. And who am I to say, well, I'm the authority on this matter, this subject, this issue. So we have to look to someone else. Namely, I would argue, we need to look to the one who created, the one literally who invented sex of, God, you created sex. You invented sex. So it would be fair to make the assumption that if we operate within the boundaries of what God created, that it would be good. It would be beneficial. It would be enjoyable. So we need to look to God. God, what is your standard of sex and sexuality. 
What is appropriate? What's not appropriate, God? How did you design all of this to actually work? And I'm not talking about just physically. God, how do we understand this? I've used this example before, but like fire in a fireplace is great. Fire in a fireplace, it keeps you warm. It's, it's mesmerizing to look at. But you take fire out of a fireplace, it will destroy whatever home it's in. <clears throat> it will destroy you. My point is, <clears throat> if we take sex outside of how God intended, how God created sex to be, there will be devastation. There will be destruction. You will get hurt. Other people will get hurt. I don't think anyone, at least in their right mind, would say, you know what? Child sex slavery, a child sex slave being raped on average, which is true, up to 12 times a day, I can't think of anyone who'd say, you know, that's, that's a good thing. I can't imagine anyone who would say that a husband sleeping with as many women as he wants, well, you know, that's a good thing. His wife is probably just a tough lady and she can handle it. And I'm sure that's okay by her. I think most people would say, no, that's, that's not a good thing. Um, I, I don't think anyone would say that a man having sex with a young man so that those young men, young men grow up not only scared from abuse but confused sexually would say, you know, that's a good thing. So we got to look at how does God understand sex? He created, he invented, he gave us sex literally as a gift. Can you think of the, imagine the, the multiple ways that God could have said, hey, this is how procreation is going to work. Put two noses together, hold them there for 10 minutes, and someone's going to get pregnant. <laughs> like there are so many different ways God could have, but the way that God designed even us, procreation to happen, that it, it happens through sex is amazing. It speaks volumes to me that, no, this is a great gift from God. But like any gift, we go to the giver and say, what is the intent of this gift? How do I use this gift? How do I understand this gift? How do I enjoy this gift? But what has happened in our culture, in our society, is we've taken a good gift and we've broken it. We've manipulated it. We've twisted it. Tolian Chavinjan says this in his book, Unfashionable, we abuse God's gifts. We abuse God's gifts. We take the good gifts God gives us and twist them and pervert them. In so doing, we turn something meant to help us into something that ultimately hurts us. And that's especially true when it comes to sex. Everything has been tainted because of sin. Namely, sex and sexuality has been incredibly marred because of sin in the world sin in us. So quickly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, the last verse in Genesis chapter 2 says this, they were naked and felt no shame. To eight verses later, it says this, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. From naked and no shame to shame, we got to cover ourselves. So, my question is simply this. If we're going to understand what sexual sin is, we need to first understand, well, what actually is sex? And if you're going to understand sex, sexuality, you've got to start with, God, you did this. You created this. What do you have for us? How do we understand it? It might seem like a really easy question, but if someone came to you and says, hey, what is sex? How would you explain that? How would you understand that? How would you teach that? Would you just explain it's, well, it's 
parts and biology and how would you answer the question, what is sex? Because if you don't have that answer, then clearly your sexuality will be very confused. Genesis 2.24 gives us the best explanation of how God understands sex. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. So a, a son leaves his parents. So it's a man and he is joined, meaning he comes together in a sacred covenantal relationship, literally brought together by God, joined together, and it says uh, joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. So male joined a female in marriage, and the two become one through sex. Now, that might not be an easy sentence to remember when someone asks you what sex is, but is your definition of what sex is actually coming from Scripture or just a textbook that you saw in sixth grade? Mark Driscoll in his book, Religion Saved, said this, according to God, marriage and sex are related, connected and exclusive. Sex as God intends it is for one man and one woman in marriage with the overarching purpose of oneness. Clearly, sex, there are many things that come from it, but the overarching purpose is this is God's gift to a man and a woman in the context of marriage to create within themselves, to create within that relationship a bond that they share with nobody else, a oneness. They're one physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, relationally, and that bond is brought together by sex. Now, anything that would contradict God's intent of sex or God's design of sex, I would argue is therefore deemed a sexual sin. If it is against or contradictory to this is God's definition of sex, now we're getting to answering the question, well, what is sexual sin? This list is not exhaustive, and it might cause some of you to be like, well, hang on, hang on. And clearly in culture, people would be like, you're way off. I am defining what sexual sin is based on God's definition of what sex is and what he intended it to be. So such things as homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, which just means sex with anyone who's not your spouse, swinging, friends with benefits, bisexuality, rape, polygamy, pornography, prostitution, pedophilia, sinful lust, incest. That's not an exhaustive list, but that's a list of this is what would be deemed as sexual sin, things that is not consistent with what God has deemed as this is sex. This would go against how God has designed and created uh, sex. Now, you might look at that list and be like, well, that's a pretty contemporary list you got going there, Michael. And I'd say, well, actually, it's a pretty ancient list because all of those things that I mentioned from homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, bisexuality, rape, uh, friends with benefits even, prostitution, pedophilia, all of those are covered in Scripture, meaning there are verses that speak to this is not God's design for sex. Now, my point in mentioning these is to highlight that God has defined what sex is, what sex is not, where sex is to be enjoyed, and where sex is not to be um, practiced. This is not me being a prude. This is not me being a legalist. But to take sex out of God's design uh, is to take a gift and ruin it. And that's what's happened in our culture as it relates to sex and sexuality, is we have ruined God's great gift because we've applied our rules, our standards, what we think is right and wrong to God's design, God's 
how he designed it to be with sex. Now, I could speak uh, to each of these different things that I've mentioned, um, but I can't. I'm only going to address one. If uh, you were here when we did a series on marriage uh, a few months back, actually the beginning of, uh, I think it was in February or March, I did an entire message geared towards pornography and really addressed what pornography is, uh, the problem with pornography, the destruction of pornography. If you're not here, the message was just titled Freedom. Search it on our website. Uh, I would love to talk more about that because pornography is destroying and devastating not just many men, uh, many women as well, but many families as well and many young kids. When the average age of kids now viewing pornography is 9 to 11 years old, I would have to say we've got a problem. So I've addressed that in a message months back. I want to focus on uh, an issue that is clearly a hot topic in our culture, clearly is a divisive issue, not just in culture, but divisive in the church as well. And it's the issue of homosexuality. Um, In his book, The Meaning of Sex, Dennis Hollinger said this, homosexuality is one of the most divisive and volatile issues facing contemporary culture and the church. And it's true. You just mention it. Uh, I, I get asked an, an awful lot when people find out, oh, you're a pastor? Well, I got a question for you. Well, what's your stance on homosexuality? I'm like, dang, that's really your first question that you want to ask? But that's the culture we're living in. Now, I don't know if this will surprise you, but researchers agree across the board that roughly 2% of men, and this is American culture, not world, American culture, 2% of men are identified as homosexual males, and only 1% of women are identified as homosexual or lesbians. Uh, Now, the number is a little bit increased. There's roughly 5 to 6% of men who say they have same-sex attraction, but they just choose not to act out on those attractions, so they don't describe or define themselves as homosexuals, and it's about 3 to 4% uh, for women. Now, I don't know if that seems high or low to you. Either way, uh, we live in a sexually confused culture, and that's why it's important to talk about this is what, how God wants us to understand sex and sexuality. Now, before I, I walk through a little bit more about uh, the issue of homosexuality, uh, I want to say three things. And I feel like these are really important, and they're worth writing down. Number one would be this. When talking about homosexuality, we must not lose sight of what we're talking about. It's easy to talk about homosexuality in in terms of what the state says or policies and procedures and programs and keep it very kind of up there. When we're talking about the issue of homosexuality, we're talking about people. We're talking about real people that are loved by God, and real people that Jesus died for. This is not some abstract thing. We are talking about real people. And it's not just a, a personhood issue. This is an issue that not just affects one person. This is a, an issue that affects entire families, entire communities. So this is not just isolated of we're just one guy, one girl. We're talking about families that have been broken because of this. Lives that have been shattered because relationships have been shattered. So we're talking about people. Number two, I would say this. This is not a new thing. Homosexuality did not come around like in the 60s and 70s with the sexual revolution. When I mentioned before, uh, when I read that challenging verse in Romans, 
Paul was writing that letter to a church in Rome, and that church in Rome was in what was known as a gay Rome, meaning the leadership in Rome not only just practiced homosexuality, but promoted homosexuality as the standard. The emperor Nero, who was in charge of Rome, and was actually the one who most likely put Paul to death, uh, was married to two men. He saw one man as his wife and saw one man as his husband. How that works, I have no idea. But my point is, when the leadership of an entire culture, community, country such as Rome... It influenced, it impacted how people viewed sexuality. It was embraced. It was accepted. So pedophilia, older men having sex with younger boys was the norm. It wasn't frowned upon. So this is not a new issue. This has been an issue that from biblical times has been happening since the beginning of time. A very challenging story is in Genesis 19. God was coming to judge two towns, Sodom and Gomorrah, because their sin, specifically their sexual sin, was so egregious to God that he was passing judgment on them for their sin. And so he sent two angels to bring destruction, pass judgment on these two towns. And would you know it, these two towns, rather than responding to these angels in repentance and humility, saying, wow, we, have, we are so off, we humbly repent, in Genesis 19, this was the story. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. We want to have sex with the men that have been sent to us by God who are actually angels. So my point in saying this is this is not a new thing. This is an old thing. This is an ancient thing. Sin has tainted sexuality from the beginning. Number three, Scripture makes clear that homosexuality is a sin, but it's not the worst kind of sin. I feel like when the church, when Christians talk about homosexuality, we treat it as like this is the super sin. And like people who have committed this, this in particular sexual sin are banished from God or completely condemned by God. Can I just tell you, that that's not true. I will be bold and clear and strong to say homosexuality is a sin because it is against God's design for what he created for sex between a man and a woman in the context of a covenanted relationship called marriage. But did you know adultery is a sin? Did you know greed is a sin? Did you know gluttony is a sin? Did you know worry is a sin? Did you know unforgiveness is a sin? The list could go on and on. So why we've chosen to elevate homosexuality as the sin of all sins, as the worst sin, is, is not even biblical. It's a sin, but it might not be your sin, but that doesn't mean you don't have sin either. Remember the passage I read in Romans uh, 1. I read verses 25, 26, and 27. In the very next verses preceding, it says this, uh, in, uh, starting in verse 29, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, and are heartless, and have no mercy. So my question is, why does Paul take the time to list out so many sins 
alongside the sin of homosexuality. Paul is often accused of, well, he's complete homophobe. He's just picking on those that have chosen that sexuality, that lifestyle. No, Paul has not elevated homosexuality above any and ever. He's just put it alongside every other sin, and he listed about 20 right there. See, Paul and Jesus alike were able to hate sin. But somehow, someway, they were still able to love sinners. As you read the Gospels, Jesus associated, had relationships with people who were known and notorious sinners, including sexual sinners. He was able to separate, this is their sin, and spoke into it, this is wrong, leave your lifestyle of sin, but I still love you, I've come for you. So we as Christians, let's not have the attitude that homosexuality is the worst sin that a person could ever commit, because my sin is just as egregious to God as the sin of homosexuality. I may not have committed that in particular sin, but this might be hard to swallow, but me worrying about something is, is an affront to God saying, I don't trust you. I don't think you can do this. I don't think you can handle this. It's the same thing as someone taking sex outside of, I think this is better. I think my approach, my idea about sexuality is so much better than yours. So those are three things that we need to keep in mind. We're talking about people, and people matter to God and are loved by God, and God wants them to know that he loves them. Not an old issue, an ancient issue. And thirdly, it is sin, but it is not a sin that is above or beyond redemption or forgiveness. Now, the question as it relates to homosexuality that I often uh, have wrestled with and get asked a lot is simply this. I was born this way. So there's nothing I can do about it. Now, I think culture likes to say that because it's a convenient answer. It's, it's really a convenient way to say, I'm just going to live this way because I was made this way. I was created this way. But the reality is that's not even true biblically speaking. But even science, like biology speaking, science is completely agnostic on the issue of biology and same-sex attraction meaning there's not been a discovery that has said, you know what, there's a gay gene. And if you have the gay gene, the homosexual gene, then you got no choice. You're going to be that way. Science is very agnostic. We don't know what to think. We don't know how to understand same-sex attraction. Douglas uh, uh, Rosenau in his book, um, The Celebration of Sex, said this, the vast majority of people who experience same-sex attraction made no conscious effort to have, those attraction, to have these attractions. They simply find themselves attracted to members of the same sex. The person did not do something that caused them to have homosexual attractions. What the person does with his or her homosexual attractions is a choice. But the fact that the attractions are there in a vast majority of cases is not. So the question then becomes, well, where do they come from? Where do those same-sex attractions come from? Again, plenty of theories on on both camps, from science as well as as faith, but the reality is that no one knows the reason behind same-sex attraction. In his book, The Meaning of Sex, Dr. Hollinger said this, while any human behavior may have factors, uh, biological, psychodynamic, or cultural influencing it, people have a choice over what they do. 
We may all have predispositions toward certain forms of behavior in life, but that does not mean an inevitability of giving into those dispositions. Human behavior, including homosexual behavior, is clearly a matter of ethics, for we willfully choose to act. Again, I've got more quotes on on this, but I'll just stop with that to say, I don't know why there is a same, some people have a same-sex attraction, but just like anything, it is a matter of choice. Will I choose to act out on that? That would be like me standing here, sitting here before you saying, you know what, I've just got a gene that predisposes me to cheat on my wife. I, I just can't help it. I'm that guy. I got the gene. And so I'm going to sleep with as many women as I can, regardless of how destructive it is to my wife. Well, Michael, that's inexcusable. Hey, don't say that's inexcusable. I got the gene. I got the anger gene. So don't cross me because my gene is going to force me to lash out at you. Like I think most people would say that's ridiculous to say that we have a gene, therefore we have to do this. I don't understand it. Science doesn't understand it in terms of same-sex attraction. But the point is we have a choice. Sex and the I World, uh, another helpful book on this uh, subject, said this, even if it were possible to unravel the mystery of sexual attraction, such empirical evidence would be unable to provide a moral basis for actions based on those attractions. While the existence of these factors may explain what happens, such an explanation does not provide basis for behavioral justification. It's a, a lot to take in. But what it's simply saying is we have a choice. We always have a choice. Will we choose to act out against what God has, has designed, uh, designed or created us uh, as it relates to sex and sexuality? Now, one of the things that was really helpful to me and I think is often misunderstood is most people think that homosexuality is about sex, that all it is is just people saying, I got to have sex, I got to have sex, I got to have sex. And what research is actually showing is it is so not about sex. And when I was reading and studying, preparing for this, I found great encouragement because what most researchers agree on is that it's about something deeper. This is in a great book James Dobson wrote called uh, Raising Boys. And he said this, the bottom line is that homosexuality is not primarily about sex. It is about everything else, including loneliness, rejection, affirmation, intimacy, identity, relationships, parenting, self-hatred, gender confusion, and a search for belonging. See, when I hear that, I'm like, wow, the answer is Jesus. The answer to homosexuality is not Christians standing outside with a sandwich board sign that says God hates fags. The, the solution uh, are coming alongside is not condemning people as hated by God because of a choice that you've made. No, the solution is to say, you know what? I'm just like you. I've made a choice to sin. And because of that, I realized I need a Savior, and a Savior has come. His name is Jesus. The Savior has redeemed. He's restored. He's reconciled. What I have broken, He's healed. And it's true for you too. So how we come alongside people living in sexual sin, whether it's homosexuality or whatever other form of uh, sexual sin, is to say, you know what? My job is not to condemn you. My job is to love you and introduce you to the Savior that has literally saved me and is transforming me. 
an incredibly helpful ministry called Exodus International that works with people who are wanting freedom, wanting change, wanting transformation from a homosexual lifestyle. Uh, The president, Alan Chambers, in his testimony said this, while my journey was full of potholes and carnivorous pits, I came to understand deeply that my pursuit must be one of holiness alone. As I pursued Christ alone, my life did change. My heart changed, and everything else began to change as well. You see, when we make the decision to pursue holiness alone, when my decision is, God, I just want to be holy, and it's not just like, all right, I'm going to will myself to do this. I'm not going to do this with her or with him. I'm not going to look at this. or It's, it's just not going to work. That's just behavior modification. But what Alan said in his testimony, my pursuit was holiness. And then he goes on to say, I pursued Christ alone. This transformation, this healing, this help, this change in my life. And he says, my life radically changed was because of what Christ did in his life. I realize that many, um, for many, this might not seem like an issue that is your issue, but to ignore or avoid this issue would be, I think, both unwise and unloving. Some of you might just have the, Michael, just let bygones be bygones. If someone wants to be gay, then why is it your job, Cape Crusader, to say differently? How would you answer that? See, I would have to say, if I'm going to honor the great commandment, which says to love God and to love people, then it is my job to, first of all, love God means to obey God in all things. And to love people is to introduce people to who God is and then help them be obedient to God in all things. So to say, well, I'm just going to ignore this or not pay attention to it or not come alongside people who are on a path of destruction would be ultimately dishonoring and disobeying the great commandment and would not be a loving thing to do. We live in the culture that just says, you know, love is just let people do what they want to do. That's not love. That's selfishness. If you're walking on a road that and a hundred yards away, the bridge is out and you're walking towards that bridge, it would be unloving of you, of me to say, you know what? The bridge, it's out. Change directions. No one would say, well, Michael, that was a really loving thing that you didn't tell that person about the bridge being out, and now they're dead. That was a great loving act. Most people would say, wow, thank you for loving me enough to say, you know what? God has something different for me. I don't know about that. Thank you for talking to me and building a relationship with me and communicating to me that I am loved by God because I'm kind of confused about that. Thank you for not coming along with a stone and throwing it at me, but thanks for coming along and sharing your life with me and walking with me as I struggle through these things. That's what it means to love God. That's what it means to love people. I want to finish. Obviously, so much more could be said on, as it relates to sexual sin, but I just, I'm hoping that you're here. My focus is not just on homosexuality. I wanted to address that because I've addressed in different times and places other sexual sins. Now, it would be super easy for you to walk away from this conversation um, because I've spent a majority of our time on the issue of sexual sin and homosexuality. But 
it would be easy for you to walk away feeling unchallenged because you're like, this just doesn't relate to me. So I finish with one question, and I answer it very simply. The question is, how does God want you to honor him with your sex, with your sexuality? Meaning, you're a sexual person, you're a sexual being, so how does God want you to honor him with your sexuality? And my answer is just simply two words, be holy. If that doesn't challenge you alone, that, those two words put together, be holy, I don't know what would. God's challenge to you as a male, as a female, as a sexual person is be holy in everything that you do. First Peter says it like this, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who ch- chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. You must be holy. Why? Because we are reflections of God. We bear his image. And God is a holy God. And the call on God, uh, the call on my life, your life, from God is, guys, be holy. Everything you do, as you think about sex and sexuality, be holy. Your standardness is complete purity, complete holiness. First Thessalonians says this, God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor. Ephesians 5 says it like this, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Be holy. If you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Christ, a a Christian man, a Christian woman, be an imitator of God. To imitate God is simply to be holy. Well, what does that even look like in a culture that does not promote purity, does not promote holiness? I would challenge you with this. Run from sexual sin so that you can run your race. There are so many of you who are missing what God has for you, how God wants to use you because you're entangled in all things that are unholy and things that are not pure. And it's hard to run a race when you've got things around your ankles that are literally twisting you and holding you back. I like how Hebrews says it in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author perfecter of our faith. I think a great biblical example of someone who ran from sexual sin so that he could continue to be used by God uh, was Joseph. He had a woman, another man's wife, every day begging him. If you read the story in Genesis 39, it's a phenomenal story of a woman who was trying to trip him up daily. Come to bed with me. Come to bed with me. Most men in our culture be like, okay, seems like a good plan. You're asking, I want to be nice. 
But Joseph says, no, I'm the guy that wants to be used by God to do great things for God so that other people who don't know God will come to know God. I don't want to be thrown out from the race because I'm just choosing sexual sin. He says in, in Genesis 39, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Have you ever had that thought like, how could I do this? How could I think this? How could I look at this? How could I continue in this pattern, this behavior? It is sinning against God. I so want each of you to have such a vision of how God wants to use you. And I believe with all my heart he wants to use you to do great things. But it is hard to run your race when you got all things impure strapped around your ankles. Tripping over yourself. What does it look like to honor God with your sex, your sexuality? Run from sexual sin so that you can run your race. My last question would simply be, is there sexual sin in your life? Is there something that is entangling you right now? Men, is it stuff that you just, you just keep going back to again and again, thinking that this time it's going to kind of fill that void? Is there a relationship that you're in that you just know is not, sexually speaking, what God has for you, but you keep going and crossing that line because you think somehow your relationship is going to grow in intimacy because you're physical now. What sexual sin is tripping you up? God wants you to run the race and be holy as he's holy. So please, let's identify what it is. And the great good news of the gospel, the great good news of the gospel is you're not condemned for that. You're forgiven for that. You're completely forgiven of whatever sexual sin it might be or has been. Completely forgiven. Christ said, I paid for that. Now let's run together the race I have for you. Let's be done with that. Let's put aside the sexual sin. Let's stop wasting your time with this. Let's move on. So when there is confession, where there's repentance, it's met with this great, incredible message of, I love you. I've always loved you. Now I want you to continue to experience more and more my love and how my love will shape and transform you and be used to shape and transform others. 